This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. No one compliments you when their paycheck is correct, but make one mistake and you risk alienating your entire workforce. Kronos makes sure your payroll is done right the first time, from punch to paycheck. With embedded checklists and simplified workflows, Kronos is your single source of truth. With Kronos, you get HR, payroll, talent, and timekeeping in one unified system, all with a proven implementation approach and simplified, transparent pricing. Learn more at kronos.com payroll. Kronos, workforce innovation that works. And now, enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis. Welcome to Kick-Ass News. At the end of the 1980s, when the Cold War ended, many, including former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, believed that democracy had triumphed politically once and for all. Yet nearly 30 years later, the direction of history no longer seems certain. A repressive and destructive force has begun to re-emerge on the global stage, sweeping across Europe, parts of Asia, and the United States that, to Albright, looks very much like fascism. Fascism is a subject with which Madeleine Albright is intimately familiar, having fled from the Nazis and then the Soviet Union as a young girl, and later facing down brutal strongmen during her years in the State Department. Now, Dr. Albright paints a clear picture of how fascism flourishes and explains why it is once again taking hold worldwide in her best-selling book, Fascism, A Warning. And today, the distinguished diplomat sits down with me to discuss her own refugee experience during World War II and the Cold War. She cautions that those who throw around the term fascism haphazardly run the risk of desensitizing us to the real danger of it. She contradicts popular assumptions that communism and fascism are polar opposites and that dictators usually come to power in a sudden bloody coup. In fact, she says almost all of the worst fascists were legitimately elected or given their authority constitutionally. In other words, it could happen anywhere, and often so subtly that people barely realize it until it's too late. She recalls her own meetings with authoritarian leaders like Slobodan Milosevic, who she says didn't fit the stereotype of a dictator, and Kim Jong-il, who was, in her words, surprisingly normal although he did put on a 100,000-person gymnastics performance just in her honor. She discusses the upcoming summit between Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump, why she says Vladimir Putin plays a poor hand very well and Trump plays a good hand very poorly, so poorly, in fact, that she says if President Trump took her foreign policy course at Georgetown University, he'd flunk it. Coming up with former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright in just a moment. Madeleine Albright served as the 64th U.S. Secretary of State from 1997 to 2001, at the time the highest-ranking woman in the history of the U.S. government. Prior to that, Dr. Albright served as the U.S. Permanent Representative to the United Nations and on the National Security Council under President Jimmy Carter. 
In 2012, she received the Presidential Medal of Freedom from President Obama, and these days she serves as chair of the Albright Stonebridge Group, a global strategy firm, and as a professor of international relations at Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service. She's also the author of six best-selling books, including her latest, which reached number one on the New York Times bestseller list. It's titled Fascism, A Warning. Dr. Albright, welcome to the podcast. Great to be with you. Thank you. You put it to your students at Georgetown University to come up with a proper definition of fascism. What did they conclude? And did you reach some kind of uh, agreement on what is truly fascism? Well, we began to really put it together in a way that I think has surfaced in the book. By the way, it was very interesting to talk to them because for them, um, it really wasn't just history. Well, because there are all of a sudden, as I write in the book, all kinds of things that are going on now um, in Europe and in uh, Philippines and Venezuela that um, have some of the characteristics. And so we came up uh, with um, kind of a list, which was that if you um, forget what the role of the press is, uh, that uh, you need a free press in a democracy, that the basis of it, however, is if the groups that create are created in society as a result of various economic problems or ethnic disputes, if there is one major group that is then um, adopted kind of by a leader and uh, that that group is always right at the expense of another group, that that is one of the basic aspects, and that there are divisions, but if those divisions are exacerbated by that leader, uh, then that is the beginning of authoritarian and fascism, and then no regard for institutions. Mm -hmm. I think that's a very important part. Um, and then ultimately, we began to talk about violence, uh, and one of the characteristics is a leader who uses violence to keep either get or keep control. And I was interested when you said that even communism can be a form of fascism, because in the popular imagination, it seems that people usually think of fascism and communism as being polar opposites. No, and I, I've decided that they really are similar in ways of, the only difference is communism actually does have um, an ideology behind it, even though right. sometimes they move away from Karl Marx. But, but I think the similarities in terms of the control aspect of things and um, the threat of violence all the time and propaganda, the use of propaganda, and calling the press the enemy of the people. Mm -hmm. I feel like Americans have this tendency to be very casual about throwing around the terms fascist and fascism which I suppose is partly due to the fact that it's all theoretical to most Americans, but you are someone who has both sat across from any number of dictators in your position as Secretary of State, and twice earlier in your life you had to flee from dictatorial regimes. How did your experiences early on with authoritarianism affect you? Well, first of all, I'm very glad that you pointed out that people throw around the term fascism. Anybody you disagree with is a fascist right. or uh, the teenage boy whose father doesn't let him drive, you know, the father's a fascist. And so I thought it was important to kind of be clearer about it, that it's not an ideology, it's a process for taking and keeping power. But my experience was, I was born in Czechoslovakia two years before World War II. My father was a Czechoslovak uh, diplomat, 
and he, uh, we had to escape when the Nazis marched in in March 1939 and spent the war in England um, all through the Blitz. And then after the, um, the war was over, we went back to Czechoslovakia. Then my father was made ambassador to Yugoslavia, and then there was a communist coup in 1948. And so we had to leave again. And I have uh, obviously wondered how these things happened in the first place. Why would fascism and communism, which, by the way, I also think is a fascist kind of regime, um, uh, how did they come about? Why did this happen? And so I decided that it was worth exploring uh, the the genesis of it in so many ways. Um, and by the way, I was going to write this book no matter who had gotten elected because I really was beginning to see things in American society that troubled me in terms of divisions, some based on technology, some on economic inequality. And so I wanted to examine how a country um, kind of gets uh, to be a victim of uh, authoritarian regimes. And yet the election of 2016 certainly hasn't hurt your book sales. <laughs> no. You mentioned at the outset that Americans tend to use this term fascist very liberally and often irresponsibly. I don't think that it's a good thing that any modern president has to just accept that there'll be a certain minority of the country that's immediately going to compare them to Hitler. When we immediately jump to the most extreme example of fascism to describe anyone we don't like, do you think it desensitizes us and maybe overlooks all of the many shades of authoritarianism that can happen before you get to the worst case scenario? I think that's an excellent point, because the minute that you use the word Hitler, it kind of makes everybody think, well, no, it's not like that, and then you don't think right. about the other parts. One of the reasons that I did the book the way I did, it has history in it, and it begins with Mussolini. Mussolini was the original fascist, and what is interesting is how he came to power and or why, and some of it has to do with the fact that Italy had been uh, on the side of the Allies during World War I, but then did not feel appreciated or recompensed in any way. He was somebody that was a very smart outsider, and interestingly enough, he first did align himself more with the left. But he tried to figure out how to keep people mobilized and very good speaker and able to uh, develop this whole aspect of blaming somebody else for what was going on. The best quote in the book actually comes from Mussolini, which is, if you pluck a chicken one feather at a time, nobody notices. And so one of the aspects of it is I keep looking to see how many feathers have been plucked um, and the slowness of the process. But he's the one that really developed this aspect. And the part that I think is also interesting that people need to note that both he and even Hitler came to power constitutionally. Yeah. And then the, the other things that I, the ones that are going on now, everybody was elected, I, yeah. th which I don't think people realize. Only the communists actually had a revolution. Yeah. I mean, it totally goes against this idea that they usually come in by some kind of bloody coup. Right. No. And that is not what happened. So, for instance, in Italy, things were going badly. And King Emmanuel, who was weak king, asked um, Mussolini to take over. And in Germany... Um, as a result also of dissatisfaction of what happened in, in World War I and the reparations and um, financial crisis, the chancellor there, the president von Hindenburg, basically asked Hitler to take power. Uh, 
so it, it's very interesting that we have uh, a real misunderstanding of some of it, and also the, the chicken plucking, the feather plucking mm-hmm. aspect of it and, and the slowness. Yeah, one of the things that stands out in this book is that rarely does it happen overnight. Like I said, in a bloody coup or any other very quick fashion, it happens over the course of years usually, and people barely even notice it until it's too late. Um, Do you worry that here in the U.S. or certain countries in Europe that they might be in those early stages and just not noticing it really? Well, that is what I worry about. And some people think my book is alarmist. It's supposed to be. Um, and it is trying to point out what the various phases are, what really happens. I think also that not enough understanding of something that I said earlier is that basically there are conditions in society that come about as a result of either wars or uh, economic situation or technology that then are taken advantage of by, and I use the word uh, clever leader who is able to kind of persuade others that he has all the answers. By the way, I have another great quote from Mussolini. He once said to a reporter, often I would like to be wrong, but so far it has never happened. Um, and so there's Sounds this, familiar. Uh, but I, I really do think that it's somebody that comes on the scene that says I can fix this. Or mm-hmm. one, for instance, that I find interesting is Turkey. What happened in Turkey Uh, was that the country had been run by elitists or the military for some time. Erdogan comes along, and he begins to go and um, seek votes in um, the hinterlands, in many ways, in in the rural areas. He then wins, and his party, AKP, does constituency services. So he's reelected. So it isn't as if um, you know, there was no attention paid to what the problems were. Then he gets all this power, it goes to his head, and he's now become an authentic dictator. Same thing happened in Hungary. So I think that it is kind of taking advantage of issues that are out there, uh, having answers, uh, and then kind of taking over mm-hmm. when, and people don't notice it until that chicken has no feathers. I almost wonder if even the dictators themselves notice it until it's too late. With a case like Erdogan, do you think someone usually starts out secretly wanting that power and just doesn't reveal their full agenda, or is it just that power corrupts once you get in there? I think probably the latter, um, mm-hmm. though um, I, I do think I'm willing really to to say that there are those who think that they're improving their the lives in their country, mm-hmm. that things were bad. Or for instance, what I the person another one person I find interesting is Viktor Orban, who's Hungarian. I first met him in nineteen in the middle eighties, uh, and he was a dissident. Um, and right. um, somebody that started a youth party. We brought him I'm uh, now chairman of the board of this organization called the National Democratic Institute, started by Ronald Reagan. Uh, Ronald Reagan said that um, democracies were not real good about defending themselves or explaining themselves vis-a-vis communism. And Victor was one of those people, you know, really very smart. And then all of a sudden, he begins to um, see the fact that he had power, that he could uh, really um, persuade people that his answers were the right ones, and then based, again, his power on the fact that Hungarians felt that they had been mistreated first uh, after World War One and then after World War Two. So it's working off of anger and saying, I can fix it. As you point out in the book, communism under the Soviets 
basically banned all nationalism. So you had all kinds of people who had all kinds of ethnic tensions and old grudges that just were allowed to simmer. Now suddenly it's released and you have all of these uh, nationalists and authoritarian tendencies poking up in Hungary and in Poland and even to some degree in your native country of Czechoslovakia, now the Czech Republic. You know, I I put it slightly differently. I say the Cold War froze the ground. Mm -hmm. And when the Cold War was over, all of a sudden all the worms started crawling around. And Mm -hmm. all those various ethnic disputes that had uh, been frozen um, come to life. The other part that I think um, I've been talking about a couple of megatrends that are taking place in this era. One is globalization which most of us have benefited from in terms of really being able to travel and uh, have experiences around the world and trade, et cetera. But it has a downside. It's faceless. And so people want to know what their identities are, which I think is legitimate. We all kind of want to know where we came from and what language and religion and all that. That's fine. That That's patriotism. But if, in fact, um, my identity hates your identity then it becomes nationalism, and hyper-nationalism is very dangerous. And what happens is that same leader that I've talked about, the demagogue, is able to use that nationalist fervor uh, to um, uh, go against the neighbors. I mean, for instance, Mm -hmm. one of the things, I did a survey in the um, early 90s, right after the fall of the Soviet Union, and we did focus groups and we did questionnaires. So two things that are germane to what we're talking about. First of all, I don't remember all the statistics, but one I remember, we asked, do you think a piece of your country is in the neighboring country? 80% Hungarian said yes. And really? so what Viktor Orban is working on now is what's, why can't the Hungarians that are in Romania and Slovakia and Croatia, they should be, you know, they're ethnic Hungarians and we don't need all these foreigners. The other thing that I'll never forget is a focus group that we did outside of Moscow. And this man stands up and says, I'm so embarrassed. We used to be a superpower and now we're Bangladesh with missiles. And what has happened is Putin has worked off of that loss of uh, power and identity and loss of nationality to say, I'm going to make Russia great again. And so he, and nationalism's kind of whipped up as a way to pursue an agenda, which also involves something of finding a scapegoat for whose fault it is that X has happened. So those various things are coming together. Yeah. And with these claims to other land outside of Hungary or with Putin's claims to Crimea. I mean, it's not hard to think back to how dangerous that is when you had Hitler making claims to the Rhineland and Poland and so forth. And these old territorial claims that go so far back become a talking point for authoritarians. The interesting thing is the Chinese are doing that. I mean, one of the things that has happened, they have dug up their history saying that they used to be the Middle Kingdom and everybody respected them. And all of a sudden, the West started taking advantage of them with the opium wars and all that. And now they want that power back. And Xi Jinping, um, a communist, has basically roused nationalism and saying, we need those islands or those rocks or um, what is it that, uh, how do we get back to being respected as the Middle Kingdom? We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back with more with Dr. Madeline Albright when we come back in just a minute. (music) 
If there's something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals, BetterHelp Online Counseling can help. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialized in issues such as depression, anxiety, relationships, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBT matters, grief, self-esteem, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment and get help at your own time and at your own pace. Anything you share is confidential, and it's so convenient you can schedule secure video or phone sessions as well as chat and text with your therapist. If for some reason you're not happy with your counselor, though, you can request a new one at any time for no additional charge. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. Kick-Ass News listeners even get 10% off your first month with the discount code KICK. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com kick. Then simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com kick. One more time, betterhelp.com kick. In today's age, it can be hard to find the time to sit down and learn more especially when the likes of social media can be so addictive and time-consuming. So you might think you don't have the time to read a book or to develop yourself. Well, think again. Blinkist is the only app that condenses thousands of nonfiction books into the best key takeaways and need-to-know information, so you can read or listen to them in just 15 minutes. Eight million people are using Blinkist right now, and it has a massive and growing library, from self-help, business, and health, to history books. I like Blinkist because in less than 15 minutes, I can get the gist of a book or take a quick refresher course on something I read years ago. Plus, I'm an auditory learner, so I love that Blinkist allows me to listen. Not long ago, I used Blinkist to reacquaint myself with two classics, Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People, and Stephen Covey's The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. More recently, I just enjoyed the book Becoming by Michelle Obama and listened to Stephen Pinker's Enlightenment Now in preparation for my interview with Dr. Pinker. And right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for my audience. Go to Blinkist.com kick to start your free seven-day trial. That's Blinkist spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com slash kick to start your free seven-day trial. One more time, Blinkist.com slash kick. And now, back to the show. And there's no better example, probably, or no worse example of these long-simmering ethnic tensions stirring up into war in the post-communist era than, of course, the war in the Balkans. That was one of the key tests of your time as Secretary of State. Uh, you say that Slobodan Milosevic didn't actually fit the stereotype of a dictator. How so? What was he like? Well, it's interesting because he um, was very sophisticated kind of uh, um, and uh, Italian suits and the whole kind of uh, thinking that he was a European. Uh, but what happened, and this has to do with power, uh, it's, by the way, my life is so weird. The fact that uh, my father was an ambassador in Yugoslavia when I was a little girl. Right. Um, and uh, I always say, you know, the little girl in the national costume that gives flowers at the airport, that's yeah. what I did for a living. Um, <laughs> but I understand, I understand the language. And so all of a sudden, to have 
the major thing during my term in office as secretary um, and or at the UN starting to be this part of the world really was kind of unusual that I understood what was going on. And what had happened was Tito had held Yugoslavia together by power and also having had a rather remarkable military history in, in World War II. Milosevic comes to power and he feels that he's losing power and he uses that nationalist tinge to... Uh, uh, rally power, and he started telling me, you know, how the Serbs had, by the way, not a lot of countries celebrate their greatness by uh, a, a battle that they lost, uh, and so that was the Battle of Kosovo. The Alamo. They, yeah, well, uh, <laughs> but I think that uh, he then wanted to rouse nationalism by saying that the Serbs weren't treated right, and that there were minorities that shouldn't have the kind of autonomous power that they have. And I went to meet him. And by the way, one thing an American, you should try this, is it's practically impossible for an American to shake hands with somebody and not smile. And I was bound and determined not to smile. So the pictures of me and are really pretty grim. But he started saying, well, you know, all the history of the Serbs. And I said, you don't have to tell me the history of the Serbs. I know the history of the Serbs. What you're doing is is bad. And so, but he did kind of come across first as somebody who was trying to be charming and very kind of sophisticated. Another strong man who kind of surprised you with his demeanor was uh, Kim Jong-il. When you first went to meet him, I think you were told something along the lines of, he's a pervert and he's crazy. And you came back saying he's not crazy. Yeah. <laughs> but you said he was actually surprisingly polite and pretty normal. Well, it was interesting because one of the things, and by the way, people should note this, when you don't have an embassy somewhere, you have no way of knowing what's really going on. And mm -hmm. we didn't have one in, in Pyongyang. And I was the highest level sitting official to go there. Uh, only recently have I been outdone um, by Pompeo. And um, so we didn't know much about him. And I had to call Kim Daejeong, who was the president of South Korea, to ask who had dealt with him, what was he like? And he said he wasn't crazy. Um, but what happened was and I went there and I stuck in the guest house and with no idea what to do. Uh, and we knew that they were listening um, and had cameras. What I didn't know, which you probably do, is that when you type on a laptop, they can tell by the strokes what you're saying. So we had to sit there. And finally, I got a message saying that I had to go and see his embalmed father. So I go to the mausoleum, and those kind of protocol things are more complicated than meets the eye. Because yeah. if you bow too low... Uh, then the press that's with you, the American press, will say she was obsequious. Um, and if you don't bow low enough, then you don't accomplish what you're supposed to. Mm -hmm. So I must have had the right angle because I go back to the guest house and they say the dear leader will see you. So we were having a press conference, which was like something out of the 50s with old cameras. And then I'm standing next to him and I see we're the same height. And I know I had on high heels, and I look over, and so did he. Um, and his hair was poofier than mine. But when we met, he really was very um, knowledgeable about the, the technical issues we were talking about. And then the part that was, we had a really fancy dinner that he gave. And by the way, having when we f were flying into Pyongyang, I was watching a documentary about how people were starving and eating bark off the trees. And then we get to this dinner with Francie. French wine and all that, and 
he was very polite and uh, uh, didn't make me kind of go from table to table, clinking glasses and getting drunk along the way. Um, <laughs> but um, very hard to understand as a person in many ways. He then at one point said to me, so what do you think? He said, I really like the Swedish model. And I thought, model, model? It was really the economic model when oh, we okay. got to, to the... But, um, and then the thing, he was asking me through his interpreter how his interpreter compared with Kim Dae-jung's, the South Korean. And I thought, oh my God, I'm going to have this poor man killed. So I said what was true, which was that... Uh, Kim Dae-jung had the best woman interpreter that I'd ever heard, but your interpreter is really good too. So, <laughs> but anyway, what um, it was interesting. Oh, by the way, I, I've said this now that I am totally responsible for Dennis Rodman. Oh, that's because, right, the basketball. Right, because the one thing we did know was that Kim Jong-il liked basketball. And so I took over a basketball autograph by Michael Jordan, and it's in their Holy of Holies. So they you know, must have some kind of feeling that it has magical yeah. power. And I understand that uh, Kim Jong-il also treated you to one of these famously epic performances, a, a cast of thousands, oh. or I think 100,000, Unbelievable. Like that, and I have it? to tell you the contrast, because... Um, Pyongyang was basically dark. They didn't have electric power and all kinds. So we walk into this, uh, well, the thing that was happening, we were at our original meeting, and he said, I have a surprise for you tonight. And I thought, hmm, wonder what. Anyway, he said, we're going to redo the ceremony that we had to celebrate the 50th anniversary of their party. And so they redid this thing. We walk into the stadium and there are so many, I hate people, applause that's, you know, all, uh, everybody the same. And so we go and sit down, and they begin with um, one of those, like, flip cards that we have at our football games, uh -huh. you know. And they were really, they were the normal scenes about the deer leader in the fields with the tractors. But then one of the issues that had been out there that we were dealing with was a question that they were developing something called the Typo Dong missile that was longer range and we were very worried about it. They were so good at the flip cards that they had one scene where they made this missile go up. Um, <laughs> and he turns to me and he says, that's the last one. Uh, but then wow. the whole thing, gymnasts and dancing and incredible costumes and everything totally choreographed, really, really well done. And, um, so when the press, I had American press with me, they said, so what did you think of this? And I thought, I said, it was really remarkable. And they said, remarkable? How can you say that? And I said, well, it takes a dictator to get that many people to dance <laughs> yeah. in line. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing the performances yeah. you can put on when people have no free <laughs> or will. Or terrified. <laughs> but it really was incredible. Yeah. And the contrast, frankly, of the bareness of everything else and then the amount of money yeah. and stuff that they spend on things like that. Toward the end of President Clinton's time in office, you had reached the framework of an agreement with North Korea, but the president thought it better to focus on Middle East peace. Has he ever expressed regrets about that choice since then? He hasn't. By the way, let me just say, um, priorities are always very hard in an administration that wants to accomplish something. And President Clinton had spent the most 
incredible amount of time on the Middle East peace process. We had spent time at Camp David. There had been things after the Camp David was in the summer of 2000, um, and then a lot of time afterwards, and there really was a thought that there could be a breakthrough there. Um, there uh, it was unclear what might happen in North Korea. Uh, and he chose to go to the Middle East, and we've talked about it. He does say that he regrets it, but it's uh, very hard at the time to know. The thing that happened that is interesting, we were in the middle of talks. We had begun issues specifically on missile limits. That was the, the issue. And by the way, Kim Jong-il had said to me that it was he would not mind if American forces stayed in South Korea. Yeah. Um, really? So what happened was... Uh, the uh, these lower level talks began in Kuala Lumpur. We were prepared to go back and keep talking. And then I'm sure you remember the election of 2000. Um, <laughs> and uh, so all of a sudden, uh, uh, <coughs> President Bush was declared the winner. And I went back and I briefed Colin Powell about what we were doing. He was very interested in what was going on. Really? Then there was a headline in the Washington Post saying Powell to continue Clinton policies in North Korea. He got hauled over to the White House and told no way. Oh. Now, I hold no brief for wow. the North Koreans, but we are the ones that broke that off. Uh, I also was able to have signed an agreement with the number two guy on uh, which we called no hostile intent, trying to figure out. And that also was then kind of uh, taken out of action. So. We've made mistakes, they clearly have, and I think we have been at a very dangerous point with them. President Trump is supposed to meet with Kim Jong-un later in the month. Uh, at some point, you said that you suspected that the new Kim would probably receive a lot of rebellion from his military if he ever actually tried to strike a deal with the U.S. Why hasn't that happened so far? Is it just that his military isn't taking this two-page letter between him and Trump seriously, or what? Well, first of all, by the way, the only real fascist that I uh, name in the book is Kim Jong-un because uh, he keeps the, his country under control as a result of violence. People have been executed that have disagreed with him. Um, he has removed a lot of people. He has people um, in labor camps starving, and so he really has a lot under control. I think that uh, we don't this is the problem. We don't know what is really happening. Uh, and part of it is the first uh, summit, uh, and now President Trump has announced that there is going to be a second one in Vietnam um, in the, uh, towards the end of the month. The Singapore summit, I have been asked whether it was a win-win or a Kim-win. Um, and I've said it was a Kim-win because uh, President Trump basically didn't get anything uh, for the fact that he um, has uh, he stopped the exercises that we military exercises that we have with the South Koreans and the Japanese, um, and I think that um, we don't. What is interesting is that we don't really know what the North Koreans have, and I don't. The military uh, have clearly uh, been, uh, I would say, kind of. Uh, uh, accommodated by things that they need and that they want. Uh, and and I think that they, at the moment, seem to be uh, supporting what Kim Jong-un wants. The question is whether demilitarization, denuclearization, is something that will come and then what will they do. Uh, but 
I do think he seems to have control over his own, um, the, the small group that is around him. But the main problem truly is that we don't know everything. And all of a sudden, there's some article, and there was a couple of weeks ago, about discovering a new place where they were hiding things that um, they had not declared. And so the issue is what will happen in the next summit, where I think Trump has to get some kind of way that we can um, find out what they really have. And what Ronald Reagan said is so true, trust but verify. Mm -hmm. And we have to have some capability of doing that. You also met with Vladimir Putin and other strong men of our era. Mm -hmm. um, you've said that he has played a very weak hand well and Trump has played a very strong hand poorly. What do you suppose is behind that second part? Is it just incompetence? Does Trump have bad advisors? Or do you think there's something more sinister at play? I, I honestly don't know the, 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 whether there's something more sinister. But I can tell you, I, as you pointed out, I teach. And uh, I teach about, um, I'd say, I made up a course. So I say foreign policy is just trying to get some country to do what you want. So what are the <laughs> tools? So my course is called the National Security Toolbox. And the tools are always the same, and we don't have a lot of them. I mean, diplomacy, bilateral and multilateral, then the economic tools, trade and aid and sanctions, force or the threat of the use of force, uh, intelligence and law enforcement, that's it. And in order to figure out how to deploy the tools, you actually need some kind of an organized decision-making process. We're not a new country. Uh, we have been making decisions for a long time. And from everything that I can glean, there is no real process. A lot, a lot of the national security advisor, now John Bolton, there was preceded uh, by two others and um, the chief of staff, and it's very hard to tell how decisions are made. So I think some of it has to do with that. Then I also think one of the more stunning things last week was um, uh, Trump disagrees with his intelligence chiefs and then says that the press made up that they disagreed when everything was on television. So I don't know how stupid he thinks we are. But but the bottom line is I think that it is mostly uh, not being able to master the process. And I've been around presidents, and it takes a lot of work. And so I'm worried about that. I do think, however, that uh, and he and Trump may not realize this, but a lot of the things he's doing are gifts to Putin. And so kind of um, deciding that we wouldn't have much to do in the Middle East anymore. The Russians have reasserted themselves there. Um, saying the things he does about NATO uh, is a gift to Putin, um, and not paying enough attention generally to what is happening among our friends and allies. So that's what worries yeah. me. Yeah, I think somewhere along the way you said that if Trump had been in your foreign policy course, you would have failed him. <laughs> I definitely would have. What, what's the most important diplomatic lesson you'd like to teach him? Um, I think that basically, as powerful as the job of president is, you do it's a, you, you need information. You need to know what you want. And there has been a strategy uh, that has been produced by this uh, government, the National Security Strategy, Either he agrees with it or disagrees with it, but um, all of a sudden statements that are made um, would indicate that he hasn't studied. I mean, I actually ask right. my students to read um, and to, to study, to turn their things in on time, um, to consider what technology really does, 
and, and this is the most important thing, to, dis to know what are the unintended consequences of your decisions. And you have to push yourself in order to listen to people that disagree with you, that can, in fact, tell you what the unintended consequences are. So when I have my students write their papers, I say, what are the watch out for's? What are the contingency plans? And what is wrong with the argument that you're making? So <clears throat> I don't see any of that going on. Yeah, uh, I dare say your students House. have. Yeah, I <laughs> dare say your students have probably read more than the president has over the past two years. Well, they've certainly. Yeah. I, I I believe they have. Yes. Well, before we go, among other things, you are well known for having this lovely and very politically charged collection of pins. Yeah. Uh, what is the significance of the one you're wearing with me today? Well, I'm wearing Mercury, the messenger. Uh, and ah. I'm wearing it during my book tour because I really yeah. am trying to deliver a message. And uh, I have to say this, um, I am a naturalized citizen. And we came here when I was 11 years old, and I was always the perfect daughter and listened to everything my father said. And my father said there is nothing better than being a professor in a free country. But what he also said, that he was worried that Americans took democracy for granted. And having, in fact, lost it twice in his lifetime, uh, he was very serious about that. And we learned, all we ever did was talk about foreign policy. But I feel the following thing, which is, and these are paradoxical words, that democracy is both resilient and fragile. And I think that it's worth giving message. So, Mercury. Just out of curiosity, what pin would you wear if you met with Donald Trump? Um, a duck. <laughs> <laughs> Sitting duck? <laughs> I have a, several duck pins, but I haven't uh -huh. really. <laughs> what no. is the significance of that? Donald Duck oh, Quack okay. Quack. <laughs> oh, of course, okay. okay. It was more obvious than I realized. <laughs> well, it's such a pleasure, and the book is just brilliant. It's called Fascism, A Warning. Dr. Madeline Albright, thanks so much for sitting down with me. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure answering your questions. Thanks again to Madeline Albright for coming on the podcast. You can order Dr. Albright's book, Fascism, A Warning, on Amazon, Audible, or wherever books are sold. Follow her on Twitter at, at Madeline. Whatever struggles you're facing, from depression and anxiety to trauma and grief, BetterHelp can connect you with a professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient you can schedule secure video or phone sessions as well as chat and text with your therapist. And anything you share is completely confidential. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. Kick-Ass News listeners even get 10% off your first month with the discount code KICK. So why not get started? Simply go to betterhelp.com KICK and fill out a questionnaire to get matched with a counselor you'll love today. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass News on iTunes and leave us a review. You can follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at at KickAssNewsPod. And as always, I welcome your comments, questions, and ideas at comments at kickassnews.com. I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass News.
Kick-Ass News is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.